Welcome to The Summit with your co-hosts, Jeremy Turman and Andrew March. The Summit uncovers the true drive and motivation that makes people successful. We talk with amazing individuals to break down how they define success, choose their goals, and their decision-making process as they climb their mountains. On today's episode, we do want to thank our sponsor, Fitzby, an athleisure company designed to re-inspire and further facilitate your on-the-go lifestyle. Check out Fitzby at Fitzby.com, that's F-I-T-S-P-I.com, and use code SUMMIT30 for 30% off. Welcome to the show. We're really excited to have Romine Sheets with us today on the podcast. Romine is an executive investor, podcaster, and entrepreneur. Uh, from graduating from Duke, doing consulting at McKinsey, graduating from Harvard Law, and now um, the CEO of uh, Matisys Technologies, uh, Romine is an all-in-one. Uh, he's a brilliant mind, and we're really excited to have him on the show today. So, Romine, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Well, we, we are too. And we'll, we'll start with the, the common first question is, you know, how do you define success? It's a great question, Jeremy. Um, you know, and I, and I think honestly, my definition of success has really changed over the years. Um, you know, earlier on, especially, you know, throughout college, you know, law school, you know, first couple jobs, et cetera. Uh, my definition of success was actually pretty tangible, right? Um, you know, did I get a degree from X school? Did I get, you know, ABC grades? Did I work at Y company? Um, and I think that's the similar framework. That's the framework a lot of folks used, you know, when you're really, you know, you're truly a young professional or, or you're coming up through the ranks. Because um, candidly, that's what you've been taught, right? And you're kind of, your mind is conditioned to, to really think that way. Um, and and I, think that's, I think that's an important way to frame success, especially early in your journey. Um, cause I think we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit, but I do think some of those things are, are important. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've realized it's not the right metric. Right. And ultimately my definition of success is really, it's really changed. And, and I think it, it comes down to, it kind of boils down to, you know, key questions like, are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Are you energized by what you're doing? Um, and it sounds fluffy, but it's, it's really not. I think when you're spending your time, your energy, uh, in something which is really, you know, your most material asset, it's really important to be able to do something that gives you fulfillment and energy. I think when you look at, you know, folks that have founded, you know, fantastic high growth companies, you look at some of the best investors in the world, et cetera, it really is because, you know, these, these folks, you know, these guys and gals are doing the same thing on the weekend, right? Their mind is always, you know, interested by looking at, you know, really interesting companies or their mind is, you know, interested in thinking about the next business challenge to solve or so, you know, people often, um, when I chat with people about, you know, this question, I often hear people say, you know, time is money, right? And I, I actually hate that phrase. Um, time is not money. If that was the case, you know, everybody that was dying would pay to get more time, right? And so I think it fundamentally boils down to success really boils down to, again, those elements of happiness, fulfillment, energy, because a lot of these other things, whether it's material resources, whether it's, you know, external credibility, um, they only go so far, you know, there's a reason why, and, and I'm, I, I say this with, uh, with empathy for, for other peer lawyers, I'm a recovering lawyer. There's a lot of reason why, you know, lawyer, a lot of lawyers hate their job even though they're you know, paid seven figures a year. Um, those things last for a little bit of time, 
but they're never the source of long-term, you know, energy and duration, you know? So, so I, I think when I think about defining success, it really comes down to those elements of happiness, you know, fulfillment and energy. And I, and, you know, one of the elements I've, I've learned just in that same vein, when you think about how do you actually accomplish success is, you know, play the long game, right? Don't over-optimize for the short term. Um, that's, that's one of the things I've really learned, especially in looking at a lot of my friends that are quite successful objectively is, you know, don't be a consistent dabbler, right? Really be committed to doing something, sticking through the journey. And, and it's not to be conflated candidly with the value of dabbling. Um, but I think you have to be really intentional about, you know, are you dabbling? Are you experimenting with projects? You know, or is this the time to really double down in focus? So that's, that's how I think about success and, and some of the mechanics, at least at a high level on how to accomplish success. Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of people that are listening to this that have similar backgrounds where they're high performing people and very focused and on a, you know, quote unquote, fast track and know where they want to go and how to get there. But what I do want to explore specifically is what was that catalyst for you that changed or influenced your definition of success? Yeah, I think, I think honestly, it was getting married. Um, and you know, that for some folks that are listening, that might sound again, like, like fluff or, or so, but it really was, I mean, I think what, at, when I introduced another person in my life at that level of commitment, um, you know, I didn't have full kind of autonomous control over my time anymore. Right. It wasn't, and, and candidly, it wasn't, it wasn't an opportunity where I could say, Hey, let me, you know, kind of dabble around for X, Y, Z hours. And then I can always just pick up work, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. What well, turns out, right, when you have a partner, you have a wife, et cetera, maybe you guys want to watch a movie in the evening together, maybe you want to cook dinner together, whatever it might be. And so there are constraints on your time. It's very natural. You know, we don't have kids yet, but when you have kids, there are more constraints on your time. As you get older and older, and, and that's something, you know, Andrew, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't really appreciate about, you know, when you're younger is you really don't have that many constraints on your time, right? And I think when you start to introduce constraints, um, it becomes really critical to focus on, you know, what are the things that outside of those constraints really give you, you know, energy, fulfillment, et cetera. Because, you know, for the folks that are listening to this, you know, this podcast, folks like yourselves, everybody's really hardworking. Everybody's really ambitious, right? And you're just going to burn out at some point if you keep kind of doing something for the sake of doing something. I mean, I went through you know, some, some firms and schools, um, you know, Harvard for law school, McKinsey for consulting, which, you know, are, 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 are pretty good institutions. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, I, at those two firms, I saw tons of people that, you know, on every metric of paper were succeeding at the absolute height of what you would expect. Uh, but we're just fundamentally unhappy people. Um, and by the way, that doesn't change now, you know, seeing friends that are partners at some of these firms, you know, are, on the fast track in terms of um, being executives at large companies, have started very fast growth, high, high growth companies, or top tier investors, it doesn't really matter, right? Those external things won't fundamentally drive your motivation for, for long enough. So I think, I think the catalyst for me actually was, you know, really was getting married. That was one part of it. I, I think that forces a, a semblance of maturity that you often don't have with, without it. But I think the other thing is, it's just getting older and seeing more, you know, seeing more and more folks in these types of environments. You know, when you're a little bit younger working at some of those firms or whatever that job is you want to chase or grad school you want to go to or whatever it might be, um, you know, you, I think from the outside in, you put a lot more value on those things. I think when you're actually in the midst of those things, 
it becomes a part of your life. It's a normal part of your life, right? And so I think what you start to see is that those things in and of themselves, uh, it's very hard to have sustained motivation just by, you know, accomplishing, you know, those things in and of themselves. Yeah, you can't just go and check boxes or, or get the, the title and then run with it. If I think of being genuine and authentic, like if, yeah, I went to Harvard Law and then I worked at McKinsey, like that's awesome. But if you weren't focused and, and knew what you wanted to achieve from those, to your point on paper, wow, you're successful. Like you went to Harvard Law, you worked at McKinsey, Duke, you know, you've invested in companies, like you're super successful. But if you're not happy or fulfilled or, or energized, you could just be sitting there miserable. And, and I love your remarks around the constraints make it difficult. I think the constraints force you to focus on what truly matters. So you know, as you begin, like you, you have kids or you get married or you spend more time hanging out with friends and family, you're prioritizing what actually matters in my life. So, you know, from a you know, career perspective, how have you found yourself to prioritize, okay, I'm passionate about this industry, so I'm going to pivot into to this certain sector? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, Jeremy. Um, and, and I think there's a couple of different ways to think about it, right? One of the, and one of the disclaimers I'll put also, you know, for folks, because I, I know I, I totally felt this as, you know, when I was a younger professional is, um, you know, kind of fluff answers of, you know, just do what you're passionate about, et cetera. I, I actually don't want people to misconstrue that that's the message, right? Uh, I, I actually think that is fluff. Uh, and I think there's a lot of intentionality you really can drive in, in the early days. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, when I, when I think of, you know, uh, to, your, to your question that you just asked right now, especially in relation to, you know, what I'm doing right now, um, I think it's really hard to have a top-down view, you know, of what you're interested in so early in, in your life and in your career. And I, I tell this to folks all the time, which is, you know, it's not your responsibility out of the gate to align with an industry. It's not your responsibility out of the gate, you know, to align with a certain function in a company, but it is your responsibility to be curious. It is your responsibility to find the right people to engage with and build relationships with. And it is your responsibility to work hard. And typically when you have those three in line, things work out. Like I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. Like it, it looks, and I think, you know, if you took revisionist history, it looks like a super clean, intentional path of, you know, this is why I ended up here. And those were the companies I work with. I could paint a very different picture, which is I was a philosophy major in college. I landed up in law school. I never ended up practicing at a law firm, even though, I, you know, and we'll talk about some of these stories. I had an opportunity to join the top M&A law firm in the country. I never practiced law. I went to a startup on the opposite coast of where I grew up from. I came back and joined a consulting firm. And now I'm leading a business. Now, I can paint the story in a way which is to say, look, hey, I've accomplished all these things. And, you know, I went to the startup and I learned how a fast growth tech company works. And I applied that then to consulting. And, you know, now I've applied that to this. And, and you can paint a beautiful story. The, the honest truth is a lot of it was stumbling along the ways, right? It wasn't a very clean path. It wasn't, there were many times in, in, in the gaps in those, between those institutions or at those institutions, I was asking myself, you know, what the hell are you doing, right? Or what do you want to do, et cetera? But one thing I've really learned over the years is that if you do apply really good work ethic, if you do apply curiosity and you do surround yourself with the right people, and those are really the three things I think when you're 
a younger professional are the things to figure out and really nail. The other stuff gets figured out, right? Um, you know, you guys know this from your experiences and, and the companies you work at, you know, when you find great people and you latch onto them, it is very hard top down to plan, you know, what it is, what opportunity it is that that will lead to. But what I will tell you is if you're surrounded with the right people, you're highly curious, you're focusing on, you know, developing yourself and you're working really hard. It's only a matter of time when those opportunities come up. So what I, what I often really, you know, this is a slight vari variation, Jeremy, on the question you were asking, but what I often really tell folks to focus on is those three things, uh, because naturally at some point that is going to create the opportunity set. And that's really going to, you know, allow you to dive into that opportunity set at the right point in time. I, I think that the age old or the canonical, you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Um, and I think that's actually a really nice, clean framework uh, to leverage and use, right? In, in my experience, I've seen so many interesting opportunities that start to come about when you're just prepared, right? I mean, these things organically come about and it's very hard to time them. It's very hard to have pure intentionality to chase specific opportunities. I think when you have intentionality, more opportunities come up, right? Um, so what I often tell folks is really, I think the key thing you need to do is actually not, not align yourself with an industry, not align yourself with a function, et cetera, but solve for those three things. Um, Cause that's really ultimately what, you know, what drives opportunity. I, I want to go back because that was really phenomenal. I want to go back and deconstruct what you had mentioned about having a high degree of intentionality around picking something and sticking with it in contrast to dabbling, because some of, you know, what you were talking about with respect to your career, you know, there is not this linear path, although you could describe it as such, you know, in the current state, but what was your mindset when you were making the decisions to go from one industry and firm to another that from an external perspective could appear to be very different, very divergent? It's a, it's a really good question, Andrew, especially because the way you can frame it, and it's, it's funny, I mean, the way I often tell my story is the last engagements I was working on at McKinsey were in, in something we called McKinsey Academy, which was really building, you know, capabilities and folks um, in, in enterprises. And now I run a workforce management business. And so it obviously makes a ton of sense, right? The flip way to tell that narrative and, and the more truthful way is I actually was not um, at this point in my career, I was a lot more interested candidly in running a business versus really focusing on the, uh, focusing on what uh, industry or what type of business it was. And I think Jeremy, that goes a little bit to your earlier point, right? Which is around kind of when you think about, Hey, do I want to be aligned to an industry, a function, whatever it was, I think it's really good to have a perspective on, you know, what are the things that drive ultimately that fulfillment, that energy? I love business, right? I'm super interested by it. I, I love different business models. It's part of why I actually, I actually liked consulting a lot, right? Uh, because of the exposure to different businesses, different industries, et cetera. And so for me, a really big thing was I wanted to run a high growth at scale business versus necessarily aligning to an individual company. So what I was very intentional about then was saying, you know, at this point in time, I have the skills where I, I actually can lead you know, a hundred plus person operation, right? And I didn't always have those skills, right? So I think that goes also back to what's really important early on, which is it's really important to develop skills. It's really important to learn for the sake of learning. 
and then put yourself in a, in a perspective and an opportunity, you know, where you can harness that ability. I'll tell you if, you know, five years ago, I was trying to, you know, be in this type of role, it would have been very frustrating and very paralyzing because a lot of those innate skills, right. I had not developed, or I didn't have that in my toolkit to actually be able to do effectively. There's a really nice career graphic. I often point folks to, which is, you know, when you think of the trajectory of a company and you think of the trajectory of your career, you never want your personal slope to be too above the, the organization you're at, because what that means is you're growing phenomenally faster than the company that you're at. That's a recipe for boredom. You also don't necessarily want it to be in the inverse, which is the company is growing significantly faster than you're growing, because that means you're going to get layered. At some point in time, you're going to have a boss because you're not able to keep up with the demands of the business. What you perfectly want to align towards ostensibly is a, a company, you know, that is growing really fast, right? That's one thing, but having your line be, you know, just a little bit above that, or just a little bit under that, depending on your own personality and psychology, there are some people that are more play from ahead people versus play from behind people. But I think naturally, if you're on either side of that curve, you're basically just a little bit ahead of where you should be, or a little bit behind where you should be which is just the right dynamic to be growing at the right pace and to be effective at the right pace. I love, I love multiple of those concepts you just discussed, Ramin. I think the gaining the tool set and knowing that it's okay to learn and not being this constant, I need to get the next title. I need to get this next role. I need to get the next pay bump versus I don't know anything about operations. I should probably go spend a year learning about operations. I've never run a PL before. Great. Can you put yourself in a position to run a PL? And even if you can't get those full-time roles, I have never had anyone at DoorDash or even at Pocket Points when you know Andrew was our chief of staff. If I was like, hey, I'm super curious, how are we handling X, Y, and Z? No one's ever like, I'm not going to help you. So to one of your earlier yes. points of being curious, if you're naturally curious and you're willing to ask someone, hey, I'm interested in learning this, can, hey, do you mind taking 30 minutes to talk to me about that? Anyone at your company and I, I love this slope model that is in that personal growth and, and business growth is kind of on that same slope. You're, the people at that company are most likely going to say, let me take you with you. Like, this is fantastic. Let's run with that. So I really think like you cannot hammer home and there's probably no age limit where you should stop. Like, I, Not at all. I mean, I, I actually think, I, I actually think there's a lot more candidly I learned from like Gen Zers that are on TikTok, right? I mean, I was just the other day, we're investing in a company um, um, that I, I won't reveal too much about, but it's effectively, if, if folks know about Pinduoduo and, and the whole kind of virtual e-commerce movement going on in China, we're, we're looking at a company in India doing something very, very similarly. Uh, and as I was going through diligence of that, I, I spent a lot of time with 18, 19 and 20 year olds just asking them how they think about TikTok, not downloading the app, scrolling in the feed. I mean, like anybody can do that, right? But really fundamentally understanding the use case. And that's the interesting, I think when you shift your mindset also to realize and kind of move out, I like the way Jeremy, you were framing it earlier. When you, when you start to move your mindset out of this game of titles and linear pathway, and you start to think more about really doubling down on that curiosity element, I think what you find is that there are all sorts of different sources of knowledge and truth and information. And ultimately, you know, the most successful people are the, are the people that ask the best questions. It's not necessarily the people that have all the right answers. It's the people that know how to write, answer the right, uh, ask the right questions. And then those are the, and, and go to the data sources that can provide 
meaningful perspectives on those questions and then have the judgment to filter out what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. I think another angle of what you were saying earlier, which resonated, but I would put a little bit of a disclaimer on is this idea of kind of, um, you know, learning a little bit of operations, learning a little bit of a PL, so on and so forth. I think, I think that's totally right. I think one thing though, that people fall in the trap of is thinking about being total all rounders of learning a little bit about everything. Right. And I think there's two angles to that. I think people that are really good actually often finds oftentimes double down on their strengths and are, are less of all rounders and are more doubled down on their strengths. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of really good research on this. We had put some material out on this at McKinsey. I know Harvard Business School has put out some stuff on this. Google has put some stuff out on this, on really their career models orient on uh, developing people around their strengths versus making them more of all-rounders. But um, I don't think that's to be conflated with, okay, great, I'll just double down on my strengths and not know anything about anything else, right? I think the best way you, est you establish judgment is through experience. You typically establish experience through bad judgment or bad experiences, Right. And so establishing that judgment oftentimes is a function of, you know, what are some of these blind spots um, that I should at least be aware of? And then, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't need to be a marketing guru. Like I'm not a marketing guru, but I know enough to think about, you know, hey, what are the metrics we should be looking at or what's effective money we should be spending? Who are the right types of people that can really tell a story? to then go hire, train, develop, inculcate those people in your organization. Right. So I think there's a fine line between let me go learn everything and anything versus the intentionality around, you know, what are you learning, how are you learning it, et cetera. In consulting, it was, you know, we had a pretty canonical framework for this, which was don't boil, you know, if you wanted to heat up a cup of water, one option is you could go try to heat up the entire Pacific Ocean. It's going to take a lot of energy, a lot of time, et cetera. The other analogy is, is find a cup, make a cup, right? Take a piece, you know, take a bit of water out, put it in the microwave, right? You get the same outcome you know, don't boil the ocean, uh, really go distinctly at the problem that you're trying to solve. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think that the, th that is true. You want to be able to have, be quote unquote, well-rounded, but also acknowledge like, Hey, I'm going to be strong in these sectors and acknowledge weaknesses. I think what will be helpful is like, I, I, you said, I, I love business and I love business models. I think this can kind of tie into like your career and talking about some of the businesses, like where did loving business and business models, like where did that start? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's so funny because I think often when you listen to people, especially when you listen to like tech startups and people talking about, uh, you know, building, you always hear the kind of canonical story of, you know, hey, I, uh, I, was, I grew up with computers and this and that and the other. Um, I was always the black sheep in my family. Uh, my, my family is a family of engineers. I was a philosophy major. I went to law school it doesn't really make sense that, that I would be into startups, right. Uh, or business. Um, but I've always really been interested in, um, in, in disrupting systems. And, and I think the, the thing that's, you know, the, the, the physiology or so that comes into play on, on, you know, how do you even think about, you know, disrupting a system or so is like everything you think of in your life, if you really think about it, right. Fundamentally, it's a problem that's just waiting to be solved. Right. You're sitting in traffic. That's a problem. Student loans, bad healthcare, expensive housing. I mean, it's all a fundamental problem waiting to be solved. Um, and I think if you think about what is the most effective way to solve a problem 
Um, today, and I, and I very firmly believe this, I believe it's through businesses. Um, I don't think it's an accident um, that historically, politically, if you look at most senators, you know, Congress folks, et cetera, they have JDs, they have legal backgrounds. I don't think it's an accident that we're starting to see a shift, right? And we're starting to see more and more people actually find business as a conduit for that change in society versus classical, you know, taking a legal background or going through some, you know, nonprofit, so on and so forth. That's not to say that none of those, you know, places, elements, et cetera, are, you know, extremely important to society. People are doing a bunch of fantastic work, you know, in those domains. I do think you're seeing a disproportionate amount of energy that people are pouring into businesses because they're seeing them as a more effective conduit of change. Um, this really came to light for me in my, in my second year of law school, I was working on, I was at a, um, I was at a law firm in the, in the summer between my first and second year. Um, and I was in the M&A practice. And, you know, if, if anybody that's listening has done an M&A deal before, you know, there's the part of doing, you know, the actual merger. And then there's the total pain in the ass work of like all the paperwork, right. And actually papering, you know, closing out the deal. Um, and Jeremy, you're smiling because, you know, you do, you do a lot of sales and stuff. So, you know, you know, this is an element of a sales process is an element of a deal process, whatever you might want, you know, how, however you might characterize it. Um, and so I got really inspired kind of thinking back to that kind of problem framework. I got really inspired to come away with it and say, it's kind of crazy to me that, you know, and I'm going to date myself a little bit in 20, you know, 13, right. That, you know, we have all this sophistication around technology and here we are closing a you know, multi hundred million dollar, low billion dollar value transaction and things are on, you know, um, you know, we're tracking people in Excel and we're, you know, having them scan in signature pages and it's, it's just a mess. So I came up with this, you know, simple platform idea, you know, on how to solve this problem. And it didn't really go anywhere, but it really lit a fire. And it, and it took me through this kind of exercise and exchange of, you know, talking to lawyers and finding out why this was or wasn't a pain point for them that's customer discovery. It led me to a perspective of saying, how do we even build this thing, right? That's ultimately building a product, building an MVP. It led me to figuring out, okay, well, if, we're, if we have all this costing and we're gonna build this stuff, how do we charge for it? What's the right mechanism, et cetera? That led me into more business models. I just got really hooked. And so, you know, my second summer, I, I did this internship at, at, um, at one of the top um, M&A law firms in the country. I spent half my time in Wall Street and half my time in the financial district in London. Um, and again, it goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier in the conversation on paper, you look and you say, you know, this is kind of the pinnacle of at least a conduit of success, right? I mean, this is like the who's who of law firms. I came back and I accepted the job offer as insurance, but I basically spent my whole third year in law school, just cold emailing CEOs of companies I thought were interesting. Um, and, and not an email of, Hey, you know, please talk to me. I'm a third year student, you know, please get on the phone and talk to me. But you know, I went on their site, I downloaded their materials, I analyzed their business, I analyzed where I thought their product was weak. And I sent the CEO a note saying, hey, if I was in your shoes, you know, you have more data than I, but outside in, these are six things I would fix. When I wrote cold emails, I had like an 80% response rate to that. Because it turns out that people find it really interesting to say, hey, here's someone that really, and this is what I mean by intentionality when we were talking about intentionality earlier on. It, you know, you can always create value. It's up to you if you want to create value or not, right? I, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I, I always think the best jobs, by the way, for people listening are never on job boards. They're the ones that you create for yourselves or you find a way to kind of maneuver into an organization. Find a company that you like, 
you know, analyze their product, analyze their business, find the, uh, the CEO's email and write a letter, I pretty much guarantee you will get a conversation. I don't know if you'll get a job, but you will probably get a conversation, right? And that is really, you know, that is really like you will open the door, right? And so a little bit of a tangent, but I, I think, you know, fundamentally for me, um, I just think business is such a conduit for change. I think we're living in such an interesting time and it, it's really infectious. I mean, I've, I've been, I think we'll talk about this a little bit. I've invested in three funds over 20 startups um, and it's just, it's so energizing seeing, you know, amazing, resilient people attacking problems in all types of industries. I've invested in, you know, supersonic flight, ed tech, healthcare, construction tech, consumer apps, uh, you know, companies built on marketplace businesses and emerging economies, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's just a really cool thing to see. So I think once you get into that flywheel, it's, um, it's, it's really hard to get out. You get really hooked and you get really energized by it. I want to go, I want to dive into the, you know, you can always add value, but also really get specific around, you know, the fear factor, because, you know, I can relate to that process that you took. Um, because for me, I, I went to a non-target school for investment banking and serendipitously this, I feel grateful for this, but, you know, worked very hard and got an opportunity to work with the top fintech investment bank in the U S and it was because of just applying and reaching out to people and just going to all of these different firms and reaching out to the executives at these different firms. But, you know, I think one of the things that somebody who is listening to this may ask is, well, that's somebody who's too senior, or they may be self-conscious, or they may have this fear factor about them, which is, you know, I can't talk to that person. You know, it's not even at arm's length for them. It's just so far of a disconnect for them to have that confidence to, to execute on what you just prescribed. But I think if they did execute on it, they would get the results that you just talked about, which is you may not get a job, but you will probably get a response. So, you know, in thinking about those situations, how did you overcome that fear factor? Did you even have any fear? And then, you know, going to the doubling down on your strengths aspect, um, you know, when do you ask people for help? Two, two a little bit different questions, but I think they're complementary. Yeah. Getting over the fear and asking. They are. Yeah, they're, they're, and they're really good questions, Andrew. I'll be totally honest. And again, I think this is an example of kind of like, we could, we could act like I had this like smooth, you know, thoughtful strategy or, or the more reality, which was kind of stumbling into it. I think I just naively didn't have a fear factor, but it really wasn't out of any sort of like supreme confidence, courage, et cetera. Um, the way I thought about it, and, and I think this was, you know, one thing that I think was positive that I can attribute to, you know, that point in my life, the way I thought about it. And I, I think it's all the more right now is um, it's, you know, it, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day if people say no, like, like when you apply to, you know, these investment banks, et cetera, let's say you were applying to Goldman, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, you know, and a couple of the like really, you know, high profile boutiques, right? Like the Evercores, the, you know, the Blackstones, et cetera, of the world. It doesn't matter ultimately, like if you got five out of five jobs or you got one out of five jobs, right? Like it doesn't matter if, you know, nobody asked me, hey, you went to Harvard. Nobody asked me, like, did you get into Yale? Did you get into Stanford? Did you get into Columbia? Did, did you get into NYU? So like all the way down the list, right? Nobody asked me when I went to McKinsey that, hey, did you get an offer at BCG? Did you get an offer at Bain? It's a, nobody cares, right? And nobody asks. And so I think fundamentally, if you shift your mindset from a, 
uh, from an accuracy perspective or a percentage perspective and more. So, you know, here's another analogy. If you switch your mindset from a batting average perspective to a slugging percentage perspective. And what I mean by that is if there's 10 balls, you know, that are pitched and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going down a deep sports analogy, but if you're, if, if you have, you know, 10 balls that are pitched to you, don't think about your career and your life is not about how many of those balls do you hit your career and your life is about that one ball that you actually did make contact with. And you, did you hit, was it like a 500 foot home run? Right. That's one of the things actually when, you know, to parlay into like the business model of venture capital and investing in startups, the model is not, did I invest in 10 companies and seven of them, you know, did pretty well. Right. The model is, there's so much risk involved here. Did I find the one company that did amazingly well and basically subsidized the losses of everything else? So I think that's the really big thing I encourage, right? I think the really big thing is if you can switch your mindset from a batting average to a slugging percentage, you will go really far. Um, I have, when I, you know, I, I do my own podcast. I, you know, I, there was a point in time where I was, you know, I had no relationships and was building a network and stuff. I have so many emails of people um, that, that never returned my email. And it didn't, it doesn't, it didn't bother me for a second because I have more than enough people that did return that email. Right. And I'll be honest, you know, a no is never a no forever. That's one thing I've learned. And so the great news is for a lot of those people that say, Hey, I'm not interested. Don't respond or whatever. Just put them in your, you know, late adopter bucket, right? Think of yourself as a startup. If you were a startup, you'd always have early adopters. You'd have innovators as consumers. And then you'd have late adopters and you'd have laggards and there are going to be some people in the world and some relationships in the world, you know, that you just develop after you hit a certain threshold. And there's going to be some people that take a chance on you. So I think to your first question, I think that's, that's the biggest thing. I think to your second question and point, um, you know, what's ultimately really, really important is, is making sure that you know, it, it, again, it kind of comes back to, uh, it comes back to this element in terms of asking for help. I think what's really important is again, to have that fundamental shift in mindset and the shift in mindset needs to be, don't ask for help, figure out how you can create value, right? It goes back to the, kind of those emails I was talking about that I was writing to the CEOs. Let's say I, I wrote a note to 10 CEOs and the message to all of them was, Hey, I'm, super smart. I'm really interested. I, I just really want to pick your brain. I think three or four of those people, maybe two of those people, right, probably would respond. And I think my perspective on that is like, most people in the world are like, are good people, right? Like they remember when they were in your shoes, they want to help, you know, etc. cetera. Uh, but you're not really doing yourself any favors if that's the email that you're writing. Because even if the, like, I get a lot of emails like that all the time. And I try to respond to as many as I can, but I don't respond to a lot of them. And it's not for lack of trying or intent or any judgment on the person. It just goes back to the constraint piece we were talking about earlier in the conversation around time, right? But if you add value, if you're finding a way to add value, people will respond to you. Everybody won't respond to you. But again, you know, let's take the former part of what I was just say, saying of, of batting, you know, slugging percentage versus batting average, people will respond to you. Right. So I think the key is, is actually don't ask for help. I think the key is figure out a way to provide value. And I think the second piece that goes with that is always play the long game. There are so many people that I found a way to create value for, or 
you know, develop relationships with or whatever, when I had no tangible ask, I wasn't looking for a job, I wasn't looking for X or Y or whatever it is. And it pays off in spades over a period of time, right? So I think what's really critical is, is always playing the long game, develop relationships with interesting people, people, you know, that you want to be like, or people you want to surround yourself well in advance of having any tangible ask, ruthlessly figure out how you can add value to them. One of the, one of the things I love doing, which adds a ton of value and doesn't take a ton of time. And it, you know, it, t- it takes time to build up that network, but once you have it is connecting people. I put it as my own kind of personal KPI, you know, every quarter I want to, I want to facilitate 25 email intros between people, between interesting people that, you know, are looking for something, would connect on something, so on and so forth. And that email and writing off that email ultimately is one of the best ROI things, lowest effort things that you can do when it's a high quality intro, right? Now, obviously not spamming people because those two people take it upon themselves to schedule the time they have the conversation. And ultimately, if it's a good match, they remember that two people now remember you were the one that did something for them. So I always put it on my kind of charter of, you know, introduce 20 to 25 people, you know, to one another every quarter, that's about 100 people a year, you know, over a five, 10 year game, you're talking 500 to 1000 people. Um, That's the power of adding value, playing the long game, and not having a tangible ask, because I can tell you, for a lot of the people that are listening, if you're in your young to mid twenties, 10 years sounds like a long time. It's not a long time. You're going to be in your young to mid thirties and you're going to have connected a thousand people at that point in time. The outlier effects and impacts that has on your career, your trajectory are so much more significant than spending the extra hour at work, you know, doing 10% better on whatever deliverable it is. Right. Not to say, obviously like, don't do that. Right. Don't skirt, like do a good job. But it's really, I think, a large part of this is about finding, you know, finding value, um, you know, where you don't actually have to triple down on effort, right? And that's how you scale yourself. That's the only way you can scale yourself. Otherwise, ultimately, at the end of the day, the only resource and commodity we all have is time. Yeah, you just have to, you have to trust the actions that you do and make sure that if you commit to something or you're passionate about something, you actually see it through, like connecting people. That's great in theory, but if you're never actually connecting people or you do it uh, lackadaisically, like it, it, it goes away. Um, and I think that the compounding effect of there, there is no end. Uh, and I'm sure this can, this, this is kind of parlaying into, you know, your investing standpoint. If I were to ask you, Ramin, like, how many companies do you want to invest in? Obviously, capital is the answer, but the answers are going to be as many as excite me because it, it, you're finding the passion and the energy. Um, so when you're looking at other people, you know we're looking at this from the flip side, and you try to uh, uh, do, do you look for yourself, or is there a core criteria that you search for when you're looking for like what is that next uh, the ideal next thing I want to be a part of or I want to invest in? Yeah. So I'll split up that question into two parts, right? I think one part you're asking um, and a direction to take the question is like, what are the evaluation criteria when you're thinking of that next thing for yourself personally, right? I think that's one element of the question. I think another element of the question is, you know, what are the things that you look into when you're investing, right, in a startup or so? I think on the former question, it's, it's really personal and it's a function of your time and space in your life, Right. Um, I think it's really hard to abject, you know, career, 
decisions, questions, et cetera, without the context of the most important element of a career decision, which is yourself, right? How much financial risk do you want to take and how much financial risk are you, you know, in a position to take, right? There are often, we were talking about constraints earlier in the conversation. There are constraints and realistic constraints, you know, sometimes that you have to solve for. I have a lot of friends, candidly, that came out of law school that had no interest in being, you know, corporate attorneys or so. But it turns out when you come from a pretty good law school and you go to a pretty good law firm for the first couple of years, you make a pretty good salary. And it turns out that that's a pretty quick way to pay down your student debt. And once you have no debt, it turns out you have some pretty good flexibility to do whatever you want to do. Right. So I think it, it really is a function of kind of time and place, you know, where you are. Uh, I think the really exciting thing, and this will tie a little bit into the investing side, I'm seeing a lot of these types of companies also is, you know, this is the best time to really like be a creator and do and be like a one or two man shop. Right. I mean, like the opportunity is to be able to create, you know, the amount of value for yourself, you know, let's say $70,000, $100,000 or so versus, you know, a job that would pay you 70 to 100,000, which is, you know, very popularly kind of call it four or five years out of college at a good startup in a good role, right? The opportunities to do those types of things, if, if you have, you know, a niche expertise, you know, can learn some basic technology proficiency and take advantage of a lot of the infrastructure that's already built for you. Um, it's a really exciting time, you know, to be able to do those things. So I think, I think it's ultimately in terms of navigating that kind of pathway piece, I think it's really personal. And I think you have to be really thoughtful, you know, about where you are in your life. And then ultimately, like, you know, back to those questions we were talking about earlier, of what, how do you define success for yourself? I defined it as, you know, something that gives me fulfillment, happiness, you know, energy. That's not the, you know, black and white definition of success. Many people define it in a different way. So that's how I would think about it. If you're thinking about, you know, evaluation criteria for yourself. Evaluation criteria for startups, is it, that's an interesting question. And it's a slightly different, there's some related pieces, but it's a slightly different framework. Um, I think first and foremost, it's really important to know, you know, whether you're a, a zero to one guy, you know, or girl, or a one to N guy or girl, right? And, and what I mean by that is, do you get really passionate about, you know, working with an entrepreneur where it's, you know, two people, they're, you know, they have a vision in the world, and they have really nothing else, and you're jamming out in the early days on the first iteration of the product, the first customer, the first check-in, etc. Or are you more of a one to N, which is like, this thing works and now really every problem is scaling, right? How do you think about hiring? How do you think about retaining? How do you think about business processes? How do you think about metrics? How do you think about fundraising? You know, how do you really think about take, you know, professionalizing this organization and putting the next level of sophistication to work? Uh, personally, I'm much more in the latter. Uh, it's, it's a place that I can add a ton of value for organizations. Um, I have many friends who are among some of the most creative and thoughtful early stage investors in, in the world. And it blows my mind the way that they think. Um, and I like to think that I blow their mind a little bit, at least in terms of the thinking of like, great, this thing works now. How do we actually like really, really make it work? So I think it requires a lot of self-awareness um, to know where you're good. Once you kind of solve for that angle or space, um, I think it boils down to four things. I, I I'm a big fan of frameworks and, and making the complex more simple. I think you can always drill down deeper and deeper. I think if you don't have a fundamental framework, it's really hard to make sense of disparate information. Um, and so what I focus on, on Jeremy is 
is really four things whenever I look at a company. Number one, is this even a problem, right? Now there's going to be varying answers. Like the right answer to this is very stage dependent, business model dependent, kind of all that stuff, right? But if we put that aside and we just keep it super simple, I think question number one is, is this even a problem? If it's not a problem, nothing else really matters, right? Like it, it, it fundamentally, when you're creating a business, you're creating something to solve a problem, right? So first question I ask is, is this even a problem? Uh, and I look for data points, right? Like explain to me users that are facing this problem. Explain to me, you know, why they're facing it. Is it a behavior pattern? Is it an evolution in technology? Is it a constraint? What, what is it, right, that drives this problem? The second part is, you know, is this, whatever the company has come up with, is this the right solution? I can't tell you guys how many times I've really bought in and been like, this is absolutely a problem. And I absolutely think your solution is incorrect, right? Uh, and that's, that's okay, right? And, and I, I'll be, you know, very transparent. I've been wrong a lot of times too. I'm not the, you know, the, the magic eight ball of, 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 every, of every startup that's going to take off, right? But that's where a fun debate can happen, right? But the second question is, is this the right solution? I think if you get over those two hurdles of, is this a problem? Is this the right solution? Then I really focus on, can you make money on it, right? Is it a business, right? Um, and then ultimately, if you say, you know, hey, this is a problem, this is a solution, you know, you can make money on it. There's a pathway. This is a really, this is a business. Then I ask, is this the right team to do it, right? Because ultimately startups are, are people problems. I, th I think what's most important when you're investing is to really understand what risk you're underwriting. I'm not a visionary. I don't pretend to be a visionary. So it's a lot harder for me to invest in like really, really early stage companies where there's absolutely no data points. Um, not to say I don't, I've, I've actually started doing it a lot more. It's definitely an area I'm getting more and more comfortable with because you're underwriting your risk on a lot less data. Um, I think later stage companies, you do have more data, right? You're typically not asking so much about, you know, the first part of that four part framework. Is this a problem? You're typically diving, you're typically diving in a lot deeper into, you know, B, you know, the solution part, what can the solution translate into? What are the adjacent solutions? Uh, and you're digging in a lot deeper into C, right? Which is the business model, right? Um, and you typically have a lot more data to, to look at. I think fundamentally, though, regardless of what business you're looking at, if you can unpack those four questions and the appropriate depth for those four questions, you can really get a lot of clarity of thought. I mean, you can see all the mechanics of a business, right? The unit economics, the competitive landscape, the market dynamics, et cetera. You can you look at all of those through the lens of those four questions. So my, my framework is always distilling down to those basic questions. And then ultimately, if there's a compelling uh, answer to them, it's, it's interesting. I think one other nuance I would just add to this is, I think what matters a lot and what a lot of people get wrong in investing in startups is, you know, people might hear the way I just, and you can disagree or agree with that framework. Let's say you agree with the framework I laid out. A lot of people can take the wrong conclusion from that framework, which is, let me ask those four questions or the questions that lead to those four things. And if the company checks the box on all four of those, we're good to go, let me make the investment. I think what's really important is actually this dimension of strength uh, to apply to those four elements of the framework. You know, startups and, and the best startups, and this goes a little bit to what we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, strengths versus being an all-rounder. The best startups actually aren't often about, are you good at everything? If you ask the question, what's the weakness in the startup? 
um, you can, you will always find an answer. Like the thing about startups, which make people seem like really smart when they're not really that smart is the de facto answer in startups is 99% of these startups are not going to work. So when you say no to a startup and you have some sort of reasoning or so, the chances that it doesn't work out as an investment are pretty damn high. And so it makes you look really smart when you're saying no all the time, because the reality is, is regardless of whether you assessed it correctly or not, the vast majority of these startups are going to fail, right? It also does the inverse, which is, you know, when someone invests in an Uber or in a Snapchat or an Airbnb or so, we do this thing in technology where we believe they're like God, like they're a hero and they're the best investor of all time. And I'll tell you, in a game of outliers, you can look a lot smarter than you actually are. It takes investing in one DoorDash to make a ridiculous amount of money and for people to be like, holy crap, you invested in DoorDash at the seed, right? And I will tell you guys, knowing people that have invested in companies like this at the early stages, a lot of them have been like, look, like, you know, they are smart people. There's no question about it. A lot of them got in because a friend made an introduction or they wired a check or whatever. It was not this like clean story of like, we sat in a room and we did, you know, diligence for three weeks and we unpacked every permutation and so on and so forth. Right. So I, I say all that to say that it, you know, what's really important for people that are listening, if you do want to use this framework and think about it when you're investing is, you know, don't ask the question of like, what's the weakness? Ask for the sake of making the investment. Ask the question for what is the weakness so you know what risk that you're underwriting. How can you help the company? How should they get better, et cetera? You can orient around your weakness after the fact. But really ask, where does the strength in this company lie? Like, I have seen companies from the inside that are you know, publicly valued at multi-billion dollars and, and, are, and totally deserve that valuation and have a pretty average management team, average culture, like not super dynamic, but their product market fit is off the wall. And the thing is, is like when you have really good product market fit, it turns out that you can screw a lot of things up and you'll still go in the right direction. Now, if you have a world-class management team, so on and so forth, right, you can accelerate that product market fit. You can juice out every which value out of that product market fit. And I think when you look at companies like Stripe and Airbnb, right, they're the canonical examples of it. They're incredible businesses, like not only that had amazing product market fit, but Brian Chesky, the Collison brothers, I mean, they are as world-class as it comes. And that's why those businesses not only will you know, not only become, you know, kind of multi-billion dollar businesses, or, you know, in their cases, call it 30, $40 billion businesses. But, you know, Paul Graham recently said, I think Stripe's going to be the next Google. These are the businesses that have the chance to be trillion dollar businesses, et cetera, because those founders are so incredible. But I'll tell you guys, I know businesses that are valued in the high hundreds of millions, low single digit, you know, one to two billions that have very average management teams. And it's because their product market, and that's not to discredit them, what the genius of those businesses is and what the founders deserve all the credit in the world on is their product market fit is absolutely unbelievable. So the, the real question you have to answer when you're thinking about evaluating a startup is, you know, you, you can use that framework. I think it's a nice way to distill the information and have it be clean. But ultimately, it's really about asking the question of if this goes right, how right can it go? That's the question I always ask when I look at every company I look at, 
which is, yeah, there's a bunch of risks. I need to know those risks because that's what I'm underwriting. Can I get comfortable around those things? Because, you know, another mistake people make when investing in startups and, and founders make this a lot when telling the story about their startup, people often too often focus around the vision of the company, right? And I think a lot of that, we could have a whole separate conversation on that, but I think a lot of the reason that that happens is because in the press, you know, what do you look at? Like when you read TechCrunch, what do you see? All you see is companies raising money. And so we have glorified the concept of raising venture capital. Like if you were an alien and you landed on earth and you read the last 50 TechCrunch articles and someone said, hey, alien, what do you think success is? They would say, well, this company raised 100 million, this company raised 50 million, this company raised 2 million. So it must be that 100 is the best, 50 is the second best, second is the worst. Like we don't focus on profitability. We don't focus on exit value. Even when we do exits, right? How often do you see headlines which are, you know, company got acquired and everybody on Twitter is celebrating a great success for the team. And it was an aqua hire that like nobody made any money, right? We celebrate exits that don't have any value ascribed to them and we celebrate fundraising. And it's not a critique. It's just the reality of what we do in tech, right? It's not to say nobody, you know, celebrates exits or, or so on and so forth. That's not the right conclusion to draw. But that is a lot of what we do. And so I think that permeates the wrong message, right? And so I think what that fundamentally for a lot of founders, and I, I see this a lot because I see a lot of pitches, is a lot of founders focus just on the vision. And look, the vision is great because like you need to know that there is a vision, but there's a lot in between to get to that vision. I, I was doing a podcast today on my podcast with, with a founder um, and he put it really well. I really liked it, which he said, you know, Ramin, I think startups earn the right to execute on their vision, right? And so what that means is that you have to hit early stage milestones. You have to build a product that works you have to get something on the ground. And if you do, you know, then you earn the right to go raise more money and really execute against that vision, right? But vision in and of itself is, is not really going to get you anywhere. So very, you know, long-winded answer. I know we, I went off on a, on a couple of different tangents there. I hope that was helpful. But that, that really is, you know, when I think about evaluating startups, um, it's such a good question. And I think there's so many nuances to it. So that's, you know, those are a couple of the elements or dimensions at least, um, you know, I that I think about when thinking through that question. Yeah. And I think that's good. You know, not everybody is going to be an investor or desire to become an investor, but I think the advice and the framework that you presented is equally applicable for somebody looking to join a startup. You know, if you're making an investment, yeah. you don't have the luxury of, you know, portfolio diversification as an employee. And so, you know, you can't get everything right, but if at least if you're trying to enhance your odds, you know, you're going back to your baseball analogy, your slugging odds, you know, it's better than just starting up and taking some whiffs at the, at the ball. Um, but and you know, Andrew, down. just on that point, just on that point, it's so important to think that way because so many people that go into startups, you know, the early, you want to think about yourself as an investor as early as you can in your career. That's not to say that you're going to invest in companies. You want to think about yourself as an investor of your time, of your energy, of your relationships, of your knowledge building as early as you can. Because what happens a lot of times, candidly, is a lot of people, a lot of young professionals, especially join these companies, don't have some of these frameworks to even think through the business that they're joining. 
And what happens ultimately down the line? A lot of these startups don't work out. A lot of that equity that you're getting promised to join the business turns out to be worth nothing, right? And so having that framework, even if it's just to evaluate the, the companies you're joining is valuable. But I think if you can apply this type of framework to your life and your career, um, it, the earlier you can, the, all the more valuable it is. Well, I think that was, you know, phenomenal advice and, you know, a great, great jumping off point. So, you know, we just want to say, you know, thanks for spending the time with us and, and sharing a lot of your insight and just having this conversation. I enjoyed it. You know, I, I think Jeremy enjoyed it as well. And I think all of our listeners are going to enjoy it. So just want to express a sincere element of gratitude and say thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. I, I really enjoyed doing it and you had, you had great questions. So I hope this was helpful for folks um, and, and excited to hear the feedback. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you have questions, feedback, and ideas for future episodes, please email us at summitpodcasts at gmail.com. Again, that's summitpodcasts, plural, at gmail.com or message us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Summit Podcasts. Thanks so much and keep on climbing.